You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Maybe I'm in love with you I say maybe Maybe I'm in love with Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have here joining me via Zoom, Fatty Judah. Fatty, thanks so much for making time to talk today. Uh, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Where are you speaking to us from? Is it Texas? Houston, yeah. And how are town, as we call it. Betty, you have been to Ann Arbor before. Yeah. Um, well, actually, my my relationship to Ann Arbor starts with my uh, dad. He got his PhD in history from Ann Arbor back in I don't know 1968, maybe or something. And uh, and my older brother was born in Ann Arbor. And now my niece goes to undergrad there. And uh, and then, of course, uh, I have a, a wonderful relationship and friendship with uh, Professor Matawa, uh, who um, uh, has invited me to Ann Arbor before. Um, and, and of course, there is the, uh, in, in Dearborn, there's the, the Arab American National Museum. And I have been there a couple of times for different conferences with uh, Arawi, Radius of Arab American Writers, and uh, and also the, the the museum's book awards as well that they hold annually. So I've, I've been a few times. In fact, uh, also my uh, dear friend in H-Town, uh, poet and professor Hayan Sharara also is a, is a Dearborn uh, native. Uh, I've gone back with him a couple of times to, to the area. So, but he, he teaches at the University of Houston here and he lives here. So, so yeah. Cause I think you were born in Austin. I, I was, yes. And did your uh, folks move there after, after the University of Michigan? Did you sort of hop to the University of Texas in Austin or? Yes. Yeah. Or, or maybe it's, they returned there because my dad got his master's at UT Austin, then his PhD in uh, Ann Arbor, and then back to Back in those days, uh, they used to call it a, a lectureship, or you know, it wasn't it wasn't the what I guess is the equivalent of postdoctorate, maybe, or an assistant professor these days. I'm not sure. And so that that was his first position, and it was at UT Austin, and that's when I was born. And your folks, your family, are expats from Palestine. It says in your bio that although you were born in Austin, Texas, you grew up a lot in Libya and Saudi Arabia. Right. And I, I grew up uh, my early years in the same in Benghazi. I think it's a, a town that Professor Matawa had spent some of his uh, youthful years there as well, although we did not cross yeah. paths there. But. That's, that's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we should say you're Dr. Judah. You practice internal medicine. You and your family have been on the front lines during the pandemic. And you are a poet and a translator. 
Um, I think that that I, I found or I was compelled back into my relationship to poetry, which started from my, you know, childhood years. You know, I must have been four or five uh, when I was, you know, introduced to poetry and I loved the sound of it and the music of it in, in my mind's ear. You know, I, I think that when I returned to the States to uh, do my undergrad in order to have better access to medical school. It was quite a, a, a difficult experience uh, emotionally um, because I had grown up in Arabic and uh, and I was, uh, you know, uh, 17 and I'd left uh, what I lived in as home, uh, the language of, of home. And, and then the... Um, the first Gulf War, the first American Gulf War happened, and that led to um, the expulsion of my parents from Saudi Arabia, um, a persecution of being Palestinian, essentially, due to sort of the political circumstances at the time. Uh, and so it was ironic that, uh, you know, the, the place uh, that which is to say the U.S., that my birthplace is responsible for um, for this kind of severance, but it is also it also played host for my next life. And so I, I think it was a bit difficult for me to know that I have no way back anymore to the Middle East, primarily because, you know, it's a it's a it's an, a region with limited resources and a limited political uh, scope. Uh, or horizon, uh, and also as a Palestinian, you don't have that many options. So I suddenly, you know, I feel as I, I've written before, I I feel like I became a born again American, uh, and and so uh, that really, uh, you know, having to be studious and in undergrad and and then in medical school, I think that compelled me into poetry because I had to reconcile a lot of feelings about what it means to sort of begin the rest of my ply, uh, my life in a place um, that I did not grow up in. And so it, it, it's really an experience that that highlights this, the construction of identity in general, that some of us, uh, for different reasons or circumstances, are confronted with head on. Uh, so... I'd written before in an essay, uh, a lyric essay, how in so many ways uh, it fits to call me an anchor baby, you know, that derisive expression, uh, you know, being dropped into the U.S. so that I am officially an American, but I did not grow up here to feel that belonging, for example, that my son has. Because primarily, this is the place my son knows most. And so for him, it's a different experience of being American. And the language, what language did your son begin with? Was it English? Yeah. English. So mm -hmm. also for him, then that's also a, a difference too. Because how right. when, you, when you're writing, Fadi, are you also writing in Arabic or are you writing in English or is it depending on the subject? How, how are you composing these days and has it changed even? 
Yeah, um, I, I think it's, uh, you know, uh, we know Charles Simmons uh, passed away a couple of days ago, and I, I'm not so sure that uh, uh, that how many times that question was posed to him, uh, whether he begins to think and I don't know what he spoke as a child. Is it Serbian or I'm not sure. I forget. But or um, but I don't know if that question was posed to him. Um, I don't, you know. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like I have I'm, I'm throwing the question back at you because I get asked that question and I want to know. I want, I want I want to be asked differently than whether I write in Arabic and I then I write in English and move between the two or whatnot. Right. Well, where, well, when do you write? When do you write in English? Is oh, it when you're composing more like the, the essay work? No. I, I, I write in, I write all the time in English. Is it because you, do you think it's because you've been here now for so long? So you, it's being here in the formative years of undergrad, because I don't know. I mean, I, I teach here, so I'm, I'm working mostly with undergrads and some graduate students, but they're super aware in a different way than I think in the past many students have been about this time in their life. I mean, hopefully not thinking it's the best four years of their life, because I always think that's a bit sad, <laughs> but, um, but, but it is transformative, right? It is. There's no, and so I think I was very interested to hear you talk about that time of coming back and coming here for undergrad, even before the Gulf War, even before the severance that was caused for the expulsion with your family, which is very interesting and complicated. I've only know a little bit about your history. I've only researched a little bit about you, Fatty, but it seems like for your father, the experience was different than from, from for your mother, their experiences in leaving and maybe coming to the US for the first time before your brother was born and for school. I guess what I'm thinking about this is all of this is stuff that we carry in our DNA. And I think some of your poems are speaking to that. But I think it's such a gift to have access to multiple languages. And for me, it was always an add-on that came during during my undergraduate days. And it wasn't something like, oh, my family speaks Spanish, so I'm going to learn Spanish. You know, it was just one way to go into the world and learn how another language really affects how our minds shape shapes thinking and thoughts even. For me asking you that, it's not a superficial question. I genuinely wonder what it's possible for you to even know about your relationship with language and if you choose it or if it chooses you. I mean, obviously day to day, much of your day I imagine is in English, but maybe not. Yeah, mo most of most of my days and hours and years have been in English at this point in my life. Um, I find extreme uh, joy and pleasure in how I've maintained my relationship in Arabic without having to, at a very high level, uh, uh, without having to sort of uh, uh, practice it or exercise it or so forth. And it, on a personal level, it led me to believe that language is quite plastic in my mind, in my brain, but I suppose it is for so many others. Uh, while I don't want to dismiss the uh, richness of, you know, the, the polylingual or 
um, I, I, I mean, clearly there are many uh, linguistic and creative geniuses in the history of the world who did not speak but one language. Hmm. So I don't know what to make of that, uh, you know? Well, everyone's brain, I mean, the pot, the potential that we have, it's just going to be used differently with what you can find or what you have access to or what you're forced into experiencing. Yeah, the, the experience of this plasticity, at least as it relates to me on a personal level, is, uh, um, is a wonderful sort of inclusive, embracing feeling. And sometimes it is alienating in a way because... Uh, um, it one, and of course, I don't think this is because I, uh, I'm a polyglot, but, uh, but maybe it's because of who I am as a person primarily, but it, it just allows me to be, uh, more receptive and embracing, I think, um, because I can move between two languages. Uh, and so I'm frankly not interested in judgments uh, of languages. Now, I know that's not what you're asking, but but uh, but I've kind of grown distant from that feeling of uh, focusing on differences and superiorities and what you can say in one language that you can't say in another, um, and what are what those things are. And I, I um, you know, uh, I always uh, I was just laughing to myself the other day, dropping my son off to school and thinking, oh, I maybe maybe it was this morning. Thinking about why was why was um, the lowercase i and j uh, why were they dotted in English as the two dotted letters? I'm sure there's a lovely oh. story. I, I've not looked into it. Uh, well, maybe the lowercase i has a point, but the lowercase j, the point is useless at this juncture um, unless somebody used to confuse it for a, a lowercase g. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or something, and whereas in Arabic, the the dotting of letters, or I, I forget how many there, you know, there maybe half the alphabet is dotted, uh, and and it was not, it was a, a latecomer. Dotting in Arabic is called erjam, as it was a latecomer. It came, it happened after the advent of Islam, and so many people came into Arabic from outside languages, and so the linguists had to figure out a way uh, for the non-native speakers who had to keep pace with the multicultural civilization uh, that th they would sort of uh, invent a way so people would not get confused in reading texts that a non-native would not because they would they would really from you know a native at the time would get from the context which letter it is so uh, so I, I just kind of think of these stories. In, in Arabic, there are no caps. There are no cap, capitalized letters or lowercase letters, for example. But there are all these dots all over the place. So the histories are different. And, you know, they create these kind of little, like, Lego games in one's mind. And, but, they, uh, but, but I insist in my mind that these, these really lead nowhere. Um, lead nowhere in the sense of, what effect it has on art and art in general, sculpture, painting, you know, uh, poetry. Um, it's just uh, an alphabet being spoken by the same machinery in the same brain that yeah. everyone has. Yeah. yeah, it's like this, the way that some 
the folks that were in a given place and had access to each other were able to start understanding the world to communicate it. So interesting and all different and all the same. I mean, not that. <laughs> now it sounds like I've said the opposite thing, but no, no, trying to echo what you said really about the minds making making meaning and that could be understood by another. Yes, no, sure. We're you know, it's nice to imagine how laughable we are from outer space to someone looking from the outside in. Uh, yeah, I think about that a lot. I think that about that a lot, actually, Fatty, because of when I was little, my dad worked for NASA. And so I was really aware of the Apollo program. And it was this idea of being able to look back and actually see the Earth from a distance. That was yeah something to grow up with, I guess, for all of us. Maybe we can go back in time a little bit, Fatty. Medicine was something that you came up with, it seems like, at at a pretty young age, because you wanted to be, I think, <laughs> but you wanted to be the one to support and to make sure everyone was healthy. You could have a house and everyone could live with you in it. <laughs> like when you were a little kid, you you had this sort of vision and this idea of what medicine could be. And I wonder about with writing how you said when you were a child, maybe even four, you you heard poems like. Were poems like a part of your your family's life? So they were read to you. When did you start keeping a notebook of your own? When was it something that became something that was also part of your identity? I think that the, the, the poetry was a means to um, a literary world or a literary culture. I mean, I think every culture has that. Um, whether we grow up in English... Uh, um, mouthing off uh, a few lines by Shakespeare or Robert Frost or whoever, it's, uh, uh, it's the same in Arabic. Um, and, it, and it is not uh, in every household uh, mm. that, that these interactions uh, take place or these things are emphasized equally. And so it was in mine, um, and I was grateful for it. And, uh, you know, I suppose it's for a reason. Uh, I know, again, I, I don't mean to, uh, you know, feel like I'm putting you on the spot, but because because it's not what you said, but that question gets asked often about, you know, um, Arabic culture and its relationship to poetry and and whatnot. Oh, and, right. and, you know, right. I, uh, but I mean, it, it's, it's somewhat of a bizarre question to me at this point, as if somehow there is a human civilization that does not have the oral tradition. Yeah, <laughs> um, as exactly. if there is not is is there a place on the planet that produces more poets than the U.S. and um, I mean currently, yeah, yeah, well, currently for quite some decades, I'd say. So I, I don't, you know, so these kind of uh, strange questions, I just, you know, I, I don't, I feel like they, we, we still sometimes out of you know good intentions or diffidence or. But we still kind of focus on these uh, conversations from a standpoint of the, um, uh, what's the word? Again, of this identity conundrum that, that the U.S. can't solve for itself. Um, there is always, you know, how the, the other who is 
who is of us, but not all, all of him or her is us, then they would have to, you know, the immigrant experience comes in, they have a story to bring in and tell us, inform us of the, of the other, of the outside world and so forth. And the conversation is, uh, grows less and less about poetry itself. What's your relationship with a notebook or working with forms or sound? To think about that, that's more future. The notebook is something that can start for anyone who loves writing. And if you're a poet, that's going to be you in some ways. Uh, I, I started having a, a notebook um, uh, in college. I can't remember. I suppose after the incident that I told you, after the the severance of the uh, that that resulted from the Gulf War, and I realized that I uh, at that point I just had to train myself to um, you know to sort of advance my poetic language. I I. I've not really written before I was maybe 18 or 19. Uh, I mean, poems uh, or poetry or verse. Uh, and then I think throughout medical school, I, I kept working on it. It was fascinating to me, you know, because w one grows more aware, as you were saying, of the undergrads, uh, of, of their identity or the, their selves at, at that age. And so I began to also be more aware of my presence in sort of the Anglophone world as a Palestinian. And of course, just a few years later, as a doctor to be, um, this whole thing, you know, the awesome power in a sense of being a physician, which is to say, you're suddenly placed as a holder of knowledge mm. that directly affects um, the many fates of other people the, not the the the, the small that the, the the many yeah not many um and many i suppose um and 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 sort of you begin to see it you know you begin to see that you have this awesome responsibility that may uh or may not go uh awry uh, mm. and uh and then you see people's stories uh, suddenly become my teachers uh, about what life is uh, and what despair is and or relief, uh, dying, um, and, uh, and the language with which civilization tries to objectively manage all this, which is the language of, um, you know, the objective language of the medical sciences in this case which of course fascinated me because it was a, like a third language obviously it, it was um it was an amalgam of greek latin and you know uh and english and um and then you find out all, almost like uh, like poetry and then you find out that you have to learn if you choose to learn to to sort of speak with other people uh uh you know at a, at a like to translate it back yeah to a patient so right, so that so that patients and, and people are are more informed or empowered by the knowledge that you provide them in non-esoteric language, whereas uh, you know art sometimes may you know disdain to do such a thing, uh, uh, and I may be guilty of this on more than one occasion uh, in, in my own writing. I mean, um, yeah, you know, How learning. So? 
Well, I mean, just I think in art, we're all attracted to uh, the negotiation of the levels of difficulty because sometimes difficulty in and of itself is um, is just a pleasure, uh, yeah. you know. Uh, and then, uh, but you know, uh, I was speaking of the craft talk. I am just thinking of the style, the idea of developing a style in art. I don't think that there's any art that. Uh, can can be called that if it does not have an identifiable style. And so one can play with difficulty or with ease, but if you, if one does not develop a style, then one probably does not develop their own art. Have you noticed since 2008 with the publication of your your first book, right? Fatty for the, the Yale Younger S series. Yes, um, in the end. Then until the more recent one, tethered to stars in 2021 when you're thinking about style and when and this actually I started thinking about it when you mentioned that there's been times guilty of composing in a certain way maybe for difficulty's sake or for the aesthetic and I wonder if that sometimes is part of the younger poet part of what everyone does in some way until you're finding the style that is that everything is tricky waters, right? I was going to say authentic to you or your voice, but we have to be aware that we're always making choices and crafting or shaping something. I, I mean, I, I think that uh, even um, the poets who had uh, sort of a, a, a very distinct style or voice or diction early on, uh, they went on to um, mutate it, if you will, and... Uh, I think also that it is a prerogative of life and of uh, of art uh, to or the artist to to just you know play around now and again. Um, yeah. Um, How are you I, playing right now? Could you read us one of your poems where you're you're playing? Uh, I, I don't know how to define that anymore. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I it's funny to because I think that. You know, there's a degree with which uh, one drops their consciousness or, you know, becomes potentially uh, circumspect of being aware of playfulness, um, whereas there's a lot of playfulness that just happens on its own and you just let it be. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I, you know, it, it's it's an interesting question what you ask, uh, you know, a performative one, right? It asks of the performative in a way. Uh, and that's also a, you know, a function of art. Art is entertaining sometimes, um, um, but I don't know. I can, you know, I can read something if you want, but I, I don't. Yeah, let's, would you mind, would you mind reading something? Yeah, I'll, I'll read the opening section of, uh, or a couple of sections in a, in a, the last poem in Tether the Stars is a long, longer poem called Venus Cycle. Was I ever a moth or you this kind of light? One of us was dying and one had no wings for the journey back. My heart, which has been wrong more times than I can count, has been right more. It tells me what yours tells me. There will be trouble, confusion, 
but no war. And no heart catheterization will alleviate the blocked roads to you. Yes, but this, of two in distance, always one is the more severed. The episode lives in its natural course. We are not wounds and not whole. Thank you, Fatty. Why did you choose to read that one? Why is this one? Because I don't get to read it often. <laughs> I'm so glad. And why is that? Because I would almost think, well, you can read whatever you want, really. Oh, uh, well, it's, it's because it's, it's part of a very long poem. And so I've just not experimented with which parts of it to read, except the opening part. And can you read the last two lines again? Can you read? Mm. The episode lives its natural course. We're not wounds, not whole. It's interesting listening to this one too, because I feel like from other poems of yours that I've been reading, some some of the imagery was present too, like the catheterization. Right. And, and this for me, it could be, I believe that was from a poem from your first from your first book i imagine that some of these these stories of others that maybe were part of the book or were they from your time with doctors without borders is there correct about is, yes yes half of the first book is from that experience yeah and do you find that uh, and maybe this is not even something that you can say but as you are keeping, you're keeping writing, you're working, that these are, these are images that are reoccurring for you, that you call upon, um, not to make it so simplistic that it's like a personal alphabet of sorts, but it's a way of, they have these meanings that exist in the world. And then they have these meanings because you have captured them within poems and then they keep coming forward with you in your process of making well in general i'd say yes but it, it, to, to answer specifically to sort of these medical aspects of the body uh or in in, in the poem i mean I've, I've been a doctor for you know 20 plus years so i so it's not like I needed Doctors Without Borders to tell me what a, you know, what diarrhea or prostate problem is or whatnot. So they they've stayed with me, but I can assure you that there, it is less likely that I'll be thinking of a heart catheterization in a refugee camp with Doctors Without Borders than uh, than here, because yeah. that's a that's a, a civilizational privilege. Uh, you know, um, that not everybody who shares uh, the current civilizational time on earth uh, has access to. Yeah. But I, I do think that, that, you know, all poetry is about the body and we just choose different, you know, diction for it. Uh, but in the end, we're really, we cannot escape being trapped, having our consciousness trapped into our bodies, into these bodies into these mortal bodies and uh, and everything that is a body to us is also um, 
mortal or we project our mortality onto it. Um, so when we speak of uh, the earth, you know, the earth is a mother and, and, and the earth is dying and we're killing the earth and et cetera. And it's, it's not what I'm, I'm not saying this to express any view against global warming or ecology or whatever, not at all. But I, I just think that we can't escape the corporeal whatsoever. Um, uh, and so I think all art and all poetry is about, you know, the body, uh, stems from the body, springs forth from the body, comes back into the body, whatever it is. But, you know, that's, that's our limitation, I suppose. Would you read something, one of your poems that is the, the body? Um, I, mean, I know I, you have many, many to pick from. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to read this, this one, which is a conversation between two people called uh, Leo, uh, you know, as in the uh, Zodiac. Do you think we'll ever get butterflies to lay eggs in our backyard after what I did to the caterpillars on the lemon tree? I think you inhaled some of the larvae on that tree and they got to your head. Or my gut. They matured, migrated up my esophagus, slid down into my lungs, secreting a cough reflex suppressant as the worms hung upside down like bats. My alveoli, their makeshift cocoons. You'd better extract that cough syrup soon. It'll be a sensation over the counter. The newly formed butterflies would gently ride my exhalations, but not all would survive the exodus. You probably wouldn't either. Your chest might explode or you might implode with asphyxiation. Maybe, and maybe the butterflies are vested in preserving their host. You'd like that, wouldn't you? Whenever you open your mouth, a butterfly enchants us. <laughs> So I, I admittedly say this is one of those playful things where, you know, I'm guilty of throwing in too many Latin words. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, maybe it's like one of those inside jokes you say in, as a poem you read in medical school or among doctors or whatnot. But, but I also think that it's interesting how commercial the language of science has become. So um, in, in the... In the interest of having an educated public, uh, because it is our right to be educated and informed, uh, we are also turned into um, better consumers. In America. Well, that's where we are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you, yeah, maybe everywhere, but we do it, we do it great here. <laughs> and, and yes, and we export it well as well. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, is part of a larger story that we're losing track of, even, <laughs> I think, in part of um, the, the experiment of the United States. Those images were, I love the, the butterfly images at the end of Leo. And thank you for reading it, even though it's meant for two voices. I think that in your voice, it was it, to hear, you could hear the back and forth. Still, it was apparent off the page as well. 
that's something to be talking about butterfly, like talking butterfly as your language that comes out. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I've written a couple of poems in the last book that, you know, I, I did not really know that I was working while I was working on them, that I was working on a performance piece where actually more than one person can read it. Obviously, you know, there's nothing new about that, but, uh, but it's fun to engage in it and without necessarily uh, premeditation, uh, you know, like writing a brief lyric play in the form of a poem. Um, like a scene in a in a dialogue, you know. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's no um, there's no reason not to, right? Because by playing with that as well, maybe you're taking risks or getting to something that you couldn't couldn't find otherwise, like in a stanza or in a couplet. Or also, one of one of your books text you you put a constraint on on your short poems. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait to repeat that uh, that book um, because I think the constraint, you know, of, of having the the poems be short and throughout a whole book and you know just 160 characters, which I uh, explain is the is the original SMS count and not you know people say Twitter you know but it's really about the the SMS count. The original SMS count was decided arbitrarily or semi quasi arbitrarily to be 160 characters um, based on uh, studies of the telegram or the telex age um, and how much how many characters were needed for for people to communicate efficiently what they needed to communicate so the studies. Uh, were done by these, I think, a couple of German engineers, and they were, you know, they decided that it was 160, and that's and that's <laughs> what led to the, uh, or they found that it was 160 was a good number, and that's what led to the original SMS being 160 characters, and that's what you charge on. So 161, you're charged for two texts, uh, <laughs> and so forth, and so so even so, I, I decided so I decided to kind of make that you know link and. Um, structure that, but but in the end, I ended up with the uh, you know face to face with the art of the short poem or the I wouldn't call it aphorism, um, and uh, uh, and it was quite a wonderful experience. I I miss it. Uh, I'd like to return to it. And so that to me feels like play, definitely. Like right, right. But the play, you know, after one constructs the. Uh, the sort of the new facade right. of it, which yeah. is, you know, and the, the framework or or the the invented form that is sort of vanishing. You know that that was also part of the allure of of it. That it's a, it's a vanishing, like it was something that comes into existence as this hyper modern thing, but it, but at the same time it was already it was already going extinct. That was really that I I found you know that to be captivating uh, psychically, if you will, and so once I got to the poems, uh, all that I was, uh, all that was left for me was the how does one make short poems work? Uh, how did you use the title with that, Fatty? Like how did you have the title working with the constraint of the one sixty character? Oh, I mean you count them, you count the spaces and the, and and I mean everything. Oh, you mean the title was included in the one? Uh, oh, 
okay. Could you read? Oh. Do you have do you have text you near you? Uh, yeah. This is one benefit from not being in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll flip through a few. Um, honeycomb. Wisdom comes late. A pomegranate's caviar womb. Penicillin kills what kills what kills as a cat chases its tail. And an infant tracks shadow like a wolf. The Chosen. There's no ram inside me to offer to a place. Every morning is imaginary and every people is invented. A woman kissed is not a woman in a kiss kissing. I love that one. The chosen. Was it the chosen or chosen? The chosen. The chosen. So you used the. That was really important there, too. Well, you know, in a in a sonnet or whatever you're doing, an I am the counter, you know, you use these articles and conjunction things to kind of buy you rhythm and and uh, and stresses or, you know, or unstresses. Um, so this works the same way, too. Mm, let's see. I haven't looked at it in a, in a long. Uh, Arabic. Calligraphy on train tracks, a pocket-sized Quran asunder, sun-bleached rodent skeletons, my son and I skipping sleepers, listening to whistles, no train came. Revenge is not what you're after. You're after what you cannot name, but names you. Revenge is after you. After you, words be my body, lick my ears against revenge. Patty, when you were writing these, did you, did you find yourself writing longer and then like excising or how, no. how do you do this? It became a, a, it created its own rhythm after a while. So I'd write, I'd write them out. And uh, I'd, I'd sometimes on occasion, I'd be surprised that the count was perfect from the first try uh, or, you know, with a, with a minor edit here or there, just get it right. So sort of became a physiologic uh, response. Uh, it felt like that to me that that I would suddenly sort of was I, I kind of because I'm a I like Jackson Pollock so I kind of it, it reminded me of this feeling of like action painting so this was you know um, me me sort of um, painting these poems in in their form in their invented form that I habituated my physiologic response to which I imagine had been well trained prior to the form, because that's what we do on our phones, those of us who, uh, you know, but I, those of us who, who, who sort of, this was a while back, you know, nearly 10 years ago or something. So, so I, I think now it's, 
I yeah, mean, it's totally. It's irrelevant. Yeah, we will. We have a dictaphone and voice messages and whatnot, and so there, there's no point. That, that was an experience. I, as I said, it was a. I, I feel very um, lucky that I re, that I just sort of jumped into something I knew was vanishing as it was happening. Yeah, uh, it probably had already vanished actually by the time I was writing it. Um, I, I love though it becomes a way to see and hear and make the world like you're having these ideas but they're also shaping in your mind because of your awareness of this rhythm to it this pattern um, right um uh, yeah. yeah no it's it's an it's an interesting book to me to return to and and uh it's one of those things where again i feel like i'd go back and and re rewrite the whole book differently now uh you know, but, uh, but I guess that is not saying much because that's what happens in life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have to also say that um, I I love the sign that's behind you, parking for Palestinians only, all others will be towed. Yeah. <laughs> that is great. <laughs> is that something that you got somewhere or is it sort of a novelty sort of sign that you can um what no, is... a good friend got it for me many years ago i never asked him where he got it from um probably online some of those funny uh you know online shops that come up with witty things or random things or yeah yeah um is it with your um with your poem tell life with its um visually how it's it's split and we have the two different experiences happening and then put in simultaneous like visually could you talk a little bit about that poem and why you chose to uh that form and the the visual quality of that well well that poem is uh, was a uh a, a tribute to and uh, after the work of uh, Palestinian poet and writer uh, Rassam Zaftan, and uh, and and you know, essentially the poem was a um, uh, concocted translation of several of his poems uh, that um, early poems that could not really like like the poems themselves were not really solid, several of them, um, but there are so many parts of them that were just utterly brilliant. So I took those parts and I kept collaging the fragments and then I, um, uh, and then I, and then I sort of made it all my own. Uh, and so, um, and and in another way, I the, so the, the the two columns are essentially a uh, an echo of um, the the form of the the qasida, the the classical Arabic poem, uh, uh, which you know has traditionally had two hemisticks. So each stanza, it, or it, each line is a stanza, and each stanza is two hemisticks. Um, and so I, I wrote it in, in sort of that uh, modern way of um, returning a form 
uh, from the past that is rarely, if ever, used today. Uh, you know, in my own way, I I, I know that it, this. Uh, I think that Greek poetry had done something similar with the hemistics, uh, mm -hmm. classical Greek poetry, and I think that this was done. And I think Merwin had done it, uh, but but the. The, the the reference point is different, right? I, mine is, is 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 Arabic and was in conversation with an, an a poet writing in Arabic. It it is like an epic poem. It has the the fragments are are made into two columns of seven sections. Would you have Would you be able to read us a piece of it so that to hear how it's working when you read it aloud? I'd have to, I don't, it's not a collected poem in a book, so I don't, I have to. Oh, I found yeah. it on the Poetry Foundation. Right, so I'm going to pull it up there and, oh, okay. and then read it and see. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can uh, read maybe the first section. Thank you. Yeah. I now release from my blood a bird of 30 she wasted that's how wars crumble us. I now tell those who are exhausted from the expense of children the secret of happiness and happiness itself, from what is arrived at but doesn't come, from the language of balance. Defeat has the taste of being shrouded with another's banner while your enemies chant your names. Some music, some shelling will strike our dead who flew off in the early raids. Have you seen them return from their flying? They stayed behind, hanging by the thread of their surprise and by their women's hair. We will dance in the wreckage, drink the coffee our dead left brewing. We will open our tombs to windows for the sea in order for the sea to remain besieged. Right here, right here, a corpse shook its trunk in the earth, a corpse snapped God's ropes, houses gathered then hid what's easy to interpret of people's speech. Which mourners ebbed and turned the sea to tombstones for our dead which poem was said and revived us? And that huge rose of ours, our only bewilderment, our offense on earth, our balcony on the kingdom of heaven, the grandfather's house, a hand that gestures farewell in the roar of the massacre, a white hand like old time, a free hand like death after death. Tell my love, space has been plucked. Tell her to sleep on disaffection's stone. Thank you, Fatty. And that was that was from Tell Life. Yes, and 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 those were overwhelmingly uh, Zakhtan's words, uh, as I said, quite made into a dough of mine. <laughs> I think it's, it's a, it's a, obviously it's a, it's a, a form of, 
you know, translation, adaptation, uh, voiceover, whatnot. Um, and for uh, the poet, for, and for the poet too now, like dedicated, and for the poet, like dedicated for sure, this. Yes, yeah, yeah, well. and, and you know, it's a, uh, but I, I do think that there, that sometimes there are these things that I enjoy doing because they capture a, um, um, a tremendous sensibility or voice or soul that is uh, quintessentially uh, what a Palestinian voice has to say uh, to the world we live in. And sometimes even in direct translation, whatever that may mean, the, these things don't quite come across without you know, further adaptation. Um, and uh, you know, and these uh, those the, the, those fragments that I was referring to really compelled me to, you know, because I've done two volumes of selected works for Zaptan, and and if you read one, if you read the larger of the two, in the silence that remains, you'll recognize several of those lines in in that book. And it feels like across time, this is a writer, this is a poet that's one of one of your people uh, of someone who you'll keep not to be try to be all <laughs> mystic or something but it feels like the poet is alive in a way that I would hope for for you one day um for any any of any of us poets somehow to have found that you find these words and you're translating and working with them and they are yours in a different way, and, but they're, they will always be theirs as well. But you're keeping it alive in the now. Not only in the translations, like you said, the two volumes, but also in your own work, because it's part of who you are as well as a, as a poet now. You know, um, uh, the deficiency of politics aside, there is something to be said for uh, a poet to encounter language that the poet knows um, is um, ahead of its time. And, um, and I don't say this with arrogance or, or defensiveness, but it is a mere simple fact that um, the way Palestinians speak and have spoken for decades uh, is really very far from the um, from the many open hearts in the Western world, um, and so it, it's not about trying to open more hearts and open more ears and whatnot. It is actually about a freedom uh, that I partake in um, uh, with such a work, uh, because I know the day will come when these things will be read openly and simply for what they are um, and what they connect to uh, and the voices and the stories that spoke those words uh, to which I belong and, and, you know, and, and to an extent are my voice as well. Uh, but for the meantime, it's just a, uh, frankly, a, um, a yucky aggravation to deal with it in, in English. 
Um, but the work is is uh, more important than the effect of the work uh, the work may have uh, uh, in the present. One of the essays that you've published more recently, well, in 2021, and with a poem, and it's the one, my Palestinian poem that the New Yorker wouldn't publish. Mm -hmm. In the Los Angeles Review of Books, yes. Yeah, which it seems like you've had, I think I was able to see maybe three articles there, but it sounds like you have a longstanding relationship with that publication for your essays. You know, I mean, yeah, it's easier sometimes to go to a place that receives you more respectfully and openly than than the uh, uh, than this whole, you know, bonanza of uh, self-marketing. This was published in June 2021. Would you mind talking a little bit about the poem? Because it starts, it's, I, I love the structure of that, how we've got the title. And the that... poem is the essay's epigraph, and it's a quite a long epigraph, or the, po the poems, or the poem is the essay's tombstone in a way, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's, uh, better to go to the LA re Review of Books rather than out into the rest of the literary marketplace. Title really addresses that. And maybe you didn't even make the title because sometimes we don't make our own titles for pieces. You did. Okay. So why? Why this title? And uh, what were uh, your intentions with it? I mean, I don't, I, I think the title speaks for itself, which is just a, a simple, you know, clear title. I and I think that sometimes we, you know, a Palestinian doesn't really get to speak simply in English, uh, uh, you know, and even the poem itself, remove, is, uh, um, is, is, is just really uh, speaks to what I just said a minute ago. It's a simple poem. It's clear. It's, but it is, uh, you know, ahead of its time because this is a, a poem that has to... Um, and and I'm not saying that because I'm I'm a poet ahead of my time. I'm just thinking that sometimes certain texts are, and and I'm not the only one who writes those. And uh, you know, and it's not about shouting or or um, about acrobatics, uh, linguistic acrobatics either. Uh, it's interesting, for example, to think of how popular some of the you know, like you read Mary Oliver or the clarity of Louise Gluck or 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 even Lucille Clifton, you know, brilliant or and I, that's it. It's just sometimes you write a clear poem, but and it's fantastic. And of course, we all have our different opinions. Others may not think it's fantastic, but but in this particular instance, it's it's not really also about you know. I mean, I think the essay I, I tried to be honest in the sense that this wasn't about well, you know what happened at the New Yorker or what didn't happen about the New Yorker. It's it's really about a. A, a, you know, a, an ongoing problem with with the permission to narrate or to even speak uh, as a Palestinian in America, period. And I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon, uh, even if we really, you know, oh, the game has changed and, and you know, uh, the inclusion rates have increased, <laughs> uh, et cetera. Um, so, you know, so it's it's just good to leave something for the record. Thank you, Fatty. Thank you for talking to me today. Uh, today on Living Writers, Fatty Duda here. Thanks so much, Fatty. You're very welcome. Thank you.
Maybe I'm in love with you. Maybe I'm in love with you. Maybe I'm in love with you. Maybe I'm in love with you. I say maybe. WCBNFM and Arbor Archives. Original air date November 10, 2016 at 7pm. I come through the window. Daylight come. A men's March Madness tournament took place this past weekend. Um, upsets all over the place. Two favorites in the one seeds with Houston and Alabama still remain. And we've got 16 teams left left as we get ready for the Sweet 16 this Thursday. And now as Alex Miller joins me here um, inside the studio, um, any major takeaway from the first weekend? Any surprise? Anything that you found really fun, really interesting? I mean, there were certainly surprises. I mean, Princeton still dancing is quite exciting. I mean, Michigan State still dancing too. I mean, I that was one of the few teams that I've picked to go there that's still in, but it's fun to see them knock off a team like Marquette. At least the Big Ten looks a little bit more respectable this year. Right. Yeah, obviously, well, uh, if we're sticking in the Big Ten, the Big Ten champ, regular season mm-hmm. uh, tournament, Purdue, fell to Farley Dickinson last, I believe it was Friday, in honestly one of the most ugly games I've ever seen. Like, they were per- just so bad. Purdue was awful. Um they looked scared to shoot threes, except for Foster Lawyer. And Gillis didn't shoot any. Th- I mean, and when he did, he looked out of sorts. Um, Edie was still really good. I think, what, 21 and 15? I feel bad for Edie because I thought when he got touches, I mean, he was playing well. I mean, yeah. Fairleigh Dickinson's obviously a small team. He's 7 4, but they were just triple teaming him, forcing Purdue to shoot open threes, and no one could buy him except Lawyer. I mean, it was. Yeah, it, I, and Farley Dickinson, right, is... 